0: Okay. Well, while you're enjoying your desserts, uh, let me try and um, try to find maybe a framework possibly about the question and the issue I've been asked to address about where is the line and this whole question about integrity in business. One of the interesting things when it comes when you start talking about an issue like integrity is how we actually come to define and think about a word which now a lot of people are talking about and you hear it talked about all the time. Um, I don't know um, um, if there's a paper you read every day. The one I get every day delivered to my home is the Financial Times, and I never would have guessed that 10 years ago that virtually every day one of the headlines on the front page of the FT would be an issue about integrity, but that's exactly what it's become. Uh, The trouble is is it's a word which we don't often think about very much, and sometimes if you have a company and it's in your company motto, it's very often in Latin, integritas, which is expressed that way to give it more gravitas, because it sounds more impressive, The trouble is, if you're not sure what the word means in the first place, translating it into Latin doesn't really help uh, for the average person within the the setup. As a matter of fact, I remember um, I was um, in the boardroom of a big banking group here in London a couple of years ago speaking, and as I was speaking, a guy um, over dinner said, Michael, I want to share a story with you which I think you're going to really enjoy. And he told a story of one of his very closest friends who took his son to be interviewed at a very um, privileged school here in the UK. And the way the interview works is the headmaster will interview the, the child applying. The headmaster sits on one side of the desk, the child sits on the other, and the father sits behind his son. So the father's in the room, he hears the whole interview, but because he's sat directly behind their, their child, they can't give any cues, they can't see them, they can just hear what's going on. And as far as the father was concerned, the interview seemed to be going very well, and you know his son seemed to be doing a really good job. And then the headmaster asked a rather unusual question. The headmaster looked at the boy and said, tell me, what is it that scares you the most in this world? And the boy paused for a moment and said, oblivion. Now, the headmaster was obviously visibly shocked by the nature of the answer, because it clearly wasn't what he was expecting. Now, oblivion, like most words, you know, it has a shade of meanings depending on the context in which you use it. You know, um, it can mean not to exist. It can mean not to exist in someone else's mind or memory, which is what most politicians live in fear of. Um, But whatever it is, it isn't a good idea. It's not a good thing. Anyway, the headmaster is obviously so shocked by this this report, by, by the answer from the kid. He offers the kid a place at school, and now the father's driving his son back home in their car. And instead of celebrating, wow, my son got into this school, all the father can think about is my son lives in terror of oblivion. And so as he's driving along, eventually he... You know, he sort of summons the courage, and he says to the, his son, when the headmaster asked you what terrifies you the most, you said oblivion. He said, w- why did you say that? And the boy looked quizzically at the father and said, that was the name of that really scary ride at the fun fair last week. <laughs> so you see the issue. The headmaster detected a profundity in the boy's answer that, strictly speaking, wasn't there at all. And so, so often when we're dealing with these kinds of questions and asking questions about these kinds of words, we have to stop for long enough and try and think what is the nature even of the word? How do we define the term that we're talking about? Now if you uh, pick up a a dictionary and you look up the word integrity, um, you'll see in the Oxford English Dictionary that I have at my home, it starts off actually with a series of negative definitions before it offers a positive one. So it defines integrity negatively as being undivided, uncorrupted and sinless. But then it offers a positive definition, to be integrated, to be whole. And when you're talking about living a life of integrity, you're talking about some kind of integrated life. You're talking about the fact that everything joins together and you're the same person in each context that you're in. But many people feel that their life isn't integrated in that way. They have to be one thing when they're with their family, they're another thing when they're with their friends, they're another thing when they're in their corporate setting. And somehow life, far from feeling integrated and connected, feels actually divided and actually chopped up. And so we're then wrestling then with this much bigger question about how is it that we begin to think these things through carefully and clearly. So what I'm going to try and do, if I can, is I'm going to um, frame my remarks around um, an outline of... a. of a different thinker actually. Um, He hasn't used it in a while, so I don't think he'll be upset if I do use it. Um, His name's Aristotle and he lived a little while ago and one of the books he wrote wrote was called The Rhetoric. And he talked in that book about ethos and pathos and logos. And I'm gonna, although I'm gonna be using a different, um, give different content to that, the, the, the structure is actually useful even though he uses it in a very different way. When it comes to questions of integrity, And when it comes to questions of ethos, the interesting thing that Aristotle did say was he said, whenever you listen to someone speak to you, the question you should ask yourself is not what is the ethic they espouse. The first question you should ask yourself is what is the ethic they live by. In other words, can you trust them? And we now live in a world where that question of trust has become one of paramount importance and right at the very center of so much of our discussion right now. And we're asking that question at every level, politically, family, personally, in terms of our friends, in terms of where we work, who do we trust? So let me ask you, who do you trust? Or maybe a more personal question, would you think of yourself as being trustworthy? In other words, deserving of other people's trust. Now, what we often fail to understand is that ethics and morals go right to the very heart of every single organization in the world. There isn't a single organization in the world that doesn't have morals and ethics right at its very core. And if you don't believe me, go and join the Mafia. And after you've joined the Mafia, you try lying to them, stealing from them, cheating them, or betraying them. You will find they have a very highly developed sense of right and wrong. And they have a compliance department unlike anything else you have ever encountered in your life. In the Mafia, they draw a circle. Within the circle of the family... The moral and ethical convictions are absolute. Any violation could literally cost you your life. But outside of that circle of commitment, you can do whatever you want to whoever you like. The question in life isn't is there a moral and ethical centre to who we are and where we're working? The question is how big a circle do we draw? Do we draw it around ourselves, around the family, around our unit, around the company, around our city, around the country, around the world? That is the question. The question is how large a circle do we actually draw? Now, because we sometimes fail to understand and think through what it actually means, because it's impossible to avoid this, these ethical and moral questions, it's, it doesn't matter where you go, they're going to be there, it then means that we very often just simply assume in a very vague way what we're talking about, and we don't stop long enough to actually think what it means. And it's not the fact that in the business world we don't do business with people we don't trust, but rather in the business world we make moral calculations all the time. If we are doing business with someone we don't trust, what we're looking for is a higher rate of return to justify the increased investment risk inherent now in that business relationship. So actually in businesses across the world of every shape and size, we're making moral calculations all of the time, sometimes on a daily basis. But very often we don't know where our ethics come from and we don't actually even know how to espouse them, which means that what we're simply doing is running with some kind of feeling and thinking that's going to be good enough to get us through. But where do your ethics come from? Normally, the things that we run our life by and even use to calculate trust, even if we're talking about the bottom line in terms of rate of return, everything that we assume and we don't think carefully through very often can lead us, astray, lead us astray in one way or another. So where do you get your ethics from? Who decides what is actually right or wrong? When is the last time you stopped down long enough to think what is actually informing and driving all of this for me? Because every single one of us is using these calculations, not just simply in the business world, but in our family life. And this is why integrity matters. Integrity affects every single relationship you have. Your friends are people you know you can trust. You can rely on them. You can depend on them. They're not going to betray you. They won't take the confidences that you invested in them and broadcast them to the world. You, they are actually there for you. I, um, a long time ago, um, there was a TV series on... Um, Well, on TV, surprisingly enough. Um, And it was called Lie to Me. I don't know if any of you saw it. It was based on the real-life research of Dr. Paul Ekman, who did his doctorate at the University of Oxford. And has now gone on to be a security advisor to governments around the world and also intelligence services. Now, what Dr. Paul Ekman realized during his research is that regardless of where you're from, regardless of where you were born, where you were brought up, how you were raised, what your background is, When we lie, there is a universal set of expressions on our face that everyone can pick up on. Which is why if you watch a modern spy movie, you will see cameras trained onto people's pupils, onto the corners of their eyes, the corners of their mouth, parts of their face. They're looking for these things called micro-expressions. This universal language which betrays whether you're lying or not. Even if you're lying to yourself, you can just simply read someone's face and you can figure it out. And I used to love watching this program, and I was speaking um, in, at a conference a couple of years ago, and I was saying how much I liked the program, and I couldn't believe it got cancelled halfway through its third season. And the guy, this guy came up to me at the end and said, I was the producer for that TV show. I said, why did it get cancelled? He said, because the only people who watch that TV program are people like you, he said, who wanted to think when they're watching TV. And there aren't that many of you. The audience isn't there. So we had to cancel it. <laughs> now, this story simply goes to prove one of my own personal pet theories, that the total amount of intelligence in the world is fixed but the population's been growing. Now, one thing that they did do, which I found absolutely fascinating with Paul Ekman, is you would imagine that someone who's dedicated his entire life's research to trying to figure out when someone is lying has also written about the consequence of lying, and he has. But listen to what he says. It's, it's very interesting. He says, trust is a matter of faith, that the person you trust won't exploit it. Intimacy. In close working relationships, romance and or friendship requires and in fact depends on trust. Yet it is well known that the last person to realize he or she is being betrayed is the person suffering the betrayal. Why? Because the betrayed person's trust blocks out all recognition of any signs belying that breach of faith. All the signs that everyone else so easily picks up on around them. We don't want to learn that our trust has been betrayed, that the person we hired is embezzling, that our children are stealing from our purses. It is terrible to discover that our trust has been misgiven. Consequently, most of us will willfully avoid any clues to its its discovery. Once trust has been betrayed, can it ever be restored? Not always, and not by everyone. Even when the betrayal is forgiven and the betrayed person doesn't want to give up the relationship, it may in fact be very difficult to completely trust again. And that is the price of lying about serious matters, the loss of trust that may never be restored. Suspicion, on the other hand, the opposite of trust, undermines relationships and results in the suspicious person's misery. Let me just say that again. Suspicion, on the other hand, the opposite of trust, undermines relationship and results in the suspicion, suspicious person's misery. All of us face choices. Do we, based on faith, take the risk of being misled by trusting? Or do we take the risk of not only disbelieving a truthful person, but never being able to establish close connection because of chronic suspicion? I think he's absolutely right in what he says. Every relationship we have depends on trust. That's what all intimate relationships work look like and they are all therefore morally governed. Every relationship we have in our life is morally governed. Where do we get it from? What is it that actually decides? And where do you get it from? Would you describe yourself as being trustworthy? Now, a failure to understand therefore the importance of business ethics and moral thinking and so on, I would say has had, I think we can say, has had a very significant impact in terms of how we actually see our corporate life. And sadly, it's beginning to, it affects our personal life too, and we often feel disoriented by what happens. But there is still a gut reaction that this is more important than at times we're willing to recognize. I don't know if you can remember um, back to 9-11 in 2001, when the planes flew into the buildings in New York. But if you can cast your memory back that far, you'll remember that stock markets around the world largely collapsed. Now, what we tend to forget is that by early 2002, the market had largely recovered. And then we had WorldCom, Enron, and a whole series of other scandals. And the market fell further and faster than it did after the terrorist attack of 9-11, telling us that what the market feared the most was not a terrorist attack from without, but a moral collapse from within. These things are vitally important. They drive and they inform so much of what is actually going on. Who do you trust? Where do you get your ethics from? What is it that drives your ethos? Now pathos, 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 I'm gonna take to talk about what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? What is it that actually makes you, what you do, worthwhile? What is it that actually infuses meaning and purpose into it? Now the thing is when we start talking about pathos in life is that we very rapidly become aware that we all have desires that can so easily lead us astray. As a matter of fact, one of the most dangerous mantras that we hear repeated in the world right now is trust your feelings and follow your heart. And almost every classical civilization throughout the world has always, often recognized that your feelings can take you and mislead you in the wrong way. Which is why in one of the ancient writings that I love reading, you have a little phrase where it says, the way seems right to a person, but that path may ultimately lead to death. In other words, it's entirely possible in our life to be convinced that something is good, right, we need it, we want it, we should have it. We are utterly persuaded. And it's not until many years later, as we come towards the end of that path, we begin to wonder, how on earth did I end up here in the first place? And it's so often the case that we find ourselves having come to a place that we never actually thought that we were coming to. What is it that helps drive and inform your passions? What are the framework that you put in place to actually help make sure that you get to the right place, that you actually understand that the goal that you actually want, even if you were to achieve it, will deliver what you hope it will bring right into the center of your your heart and existence. And when we lose and don't have a framework to help guide those kinds of passions, we find our passions can take us almost anywhere we want to. It's a couple of um, years ago, I was getting ready to um, speak to a a large accountancy firm, and I got online and I thought what I'll do is that I would watch a, a, uh, a series of ethical lectures that had been put on the internet. And so I went and looked around some of the world's leading business schools and leading universities. And if they would put ethics lectures up on, I sat down and watched them. It's a great way to get a free education. And as I was watching one very famous professor at one of the world's leading um, institutions, He said something which i found incredibly controversial he was speaking to a group of university students who were all copiously taking notes and he looked at his students and he said to them it has been scientifically proved that people are always good and when you put them under pressure they will always do the right thing and all the students stood there nodding and writing it down now when i quoted this to the 300 senior partners of this global accountancy firm You could see everybody with their mouth open, shaking their head, going, that's not the world I live in, okay? That is not my experience of the business world, that everybody is desperate to do the right thing, and when you really put them under pressure, they'll come up right every single time. That's just simply not the world we're in. I find that that statement incredibly suspect. What I find much more realistic, actually, is something that was written by someone a couple of thousand, about 2,000 years ago. And he describes a process that I actually think is far more realistic. Here's what he said. He said, I don't understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do it. What I hate to do, I seem to keep on doing. He says, I agree that the law, it is good, but I have a problem in carrying it out. I have the desire to do what is good, but I don't do it. I don't do the good I want to do. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now that description I find far more realistic. Most of the business people I meet go into business as a young person dreaming of being admired for the way they live. We dream about hitting a point of success and achievement in our life where people look up to us and they respect us and they think, and because of the manner in which we live, the wisdom that we have, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we treat other people and we're actually admired and looked up to. And yet as we're going through that walk, it seems we make all these tiny little cuts, a little decision here, a little decision there, all the time chipping away at this ideal. And then all of a sudden we come to a point in our life where we think, how did I end up here? This isn't how I thought it would look like. This isn't what I imagined when I first set off. And that's the challenge that we we more commonly face. And we see it everywhere, this desire to want to do the good, even at times to embrace it and fall in love with the idea of it, but finding it so difficult to actually practically implement it and carry it out. So when we talk about the idea then of logos, which um, Aristotle was talking in terms of rhetoric, in terms of words, we are actually asking a very profound question because we don't just simply need words to know where we get our ethics from or a framework of words and knowledge to actually guide our passions and get us to the right place. We're looking for something deeper than that. We don't just simply need a word of information that may tell us how to live. We're ultimately looking for some kind of transformation. Something can actually deal with the human heart. My um, eldest daughter is now currently at university and she's a uh, very bright young lady. And uh, a couple of years ago, um, by the time she was a mid teenager she'd grown her hair all the way down to the, below the base of her spine. So she had incredibly long hair. And I was getting ready to go on a trip overseas and as I was leaving, she said to me, Dad, you better be prepared because when I come home, my hair going to be a lot shorter than it is now. I didn't really give it any thought and went off on the trip. And when I landed and I'm now in a car coming back to Oxford from Heathrow, my wife rings me when I'm still in the car and she says, Michael, when you get home, you are to say nothing to Lucy apart from the fact that she looks beautiful. <laughs> and so, you know, I knock on the front, our front door and the front door opens and Lucy answers it, and she's had her hair cut up to here. And so I'm a man under authority and I do what I'm told and I smile and I say, sweetheart, you look beautiful. Give her a big hug and, you know, go into the house. Now, a couple of days later, my wife is out playing the cello. She leads the cello section in an orchestra that she's in in Oxford and she was out in a rehearsal. So now I'm alone with my daughter, Lucy, when we're watching TV and I finally have the opportunity to ask her the question I've been dying to ask her now for days. And so I sort of start breathing calmly in and out, just to make sure that my voice is, you know, there's sort of no hidden tones there I don't want, and I smile, you know, and and so on. And then I turn to her as casually as I can, and I say, so, I say, what prompted the change of hairstyle? Were you bored? Did you want to try something new? Was it fashion? And she said, well, actually, Dad, she said, I saw this TV program eight weeks ago about this charity that look after little girls who have leukemia, who are seven and eight years old. And one of the things they were saying that they struggle to find are hair donors who will donate their hair to make wigs for these girls when they lose all their hair. And so I decided that what I'll do is I'll send my hair to them. And she had a hairdresser come to the house and plait her hair in a very special way and tie it off and then cut it and put it in an envelope and mail it off to this charity so they could make wigs for some of these girls. And my eldest daughter Lucy is a very, very avid reader. She's been reading extensively um, from a very early age. And I looked at her and I said, I said sweetheart, you, you, I remember reading that book with you little women. And she said, yes. And there's a scene in that book, if you haven't read it, where the very feisty heroine, a woman by the name of Elizabeth, she sells her hair to, to get money so her mother can go and visit her father, who's now dying in a military hospital thousands of miles from home. And as she hands over the money to buy this train ticket, the mother takes the money and looks at her, and says, Elizabeth, your hair will regrow, but you'll never be more beautiful to me than you are right now. And as Lucy told me what she'd done, those were the only words that seemed fitting to, to, to share with her. And I said, do you remember that scene from the book? And she said, yes. And I said, the only words I can think to say are your hair will regrow, but you'll never be more beautiful to me than you are right now. The complicated thing about the human heart is that we see in every human heart this incredible desire and capacity for good. And in the same human heart, we also see envy and malice and anger and lust and rage, all mixed up in the same heart. It's not that we easily find good people and bad people. We find people who have all of these desires within them. And ultimately, the question has to be, is there anything that's actually capable of dealing with us at that kind of level in our hearts? When we talk about why integrity matters, there is a huge challenge with with addressing it and it's this. We can talk about integrity in a way that becomes tyrannical. We can talk about integrity in a way that actually can make us feel oppressed because one thing we all know is at some point our integrity fails. At some point all of us are gonna do something wrong, say something wrong, act in the wrong way and the question is what then? So it's one thing to talk about why integrity matters and another thing to say that actually it's there. There's another question which then flows, well what do I do when it goes wrong? I, um, uh, I don't know if any of you can remember the Bearings Bank collapse. Um, my um, sort of uh, research was in the area of systemic risk to financial markets. And um, I can remember smiling when I saw the photograph of a trader called Nick Leeson being um, arrested at an airport in Germany. Um, he was fly- fleeing from Asia. And the reason I smiled is that I'm, I'm virtually blind. I have um, the highest refractive index you can possibly have now in my, in my now plastic lenses. Um, Otherwise, I can't see anything, Um, and they have to be of a certain quality, otherwise, you know, my glasses would be like this thick. Um, But back then, you didn't have plastic. You had to have glass if you wanted something that strong, and Nikon used to make the most powerful refractive index glass for people like me who were very short-sighted, and the thing about it was it had a green tint to it, so when you saw it from an angle, it always looked green, and when Nick Leeson was being arrested in Frankfurt, you could see from the picture his glasses were flashing green, And I can remember smiling, thinking, oh, look, he's got the same glasses as me. The thing that really made me laugh about it, though, was the next day, the company, Nikon, took out a full-page ad in the Financial Times of Nick Leeson being arrested, and underneath it said Nikon for people who like to take long shots, and then a picture (laughs) of one of their large telephoto lenses underneath, (laughs) uh, which I thought was very clever. The, the, The issue comes, what do we do when integrity fails? And when integrity fails, there are three questions we have to be able to answer, and if we can't answer them, we're stuck. The first question is, who do I talk to? The second one, is there any hope? And the third one, well if there is, what's the process of redemption that gets me out of the hole I'm in? When integrity fails, if you don't know who to talk to in your personal life, in your family life, in your corporate life or whatever, when, when things go wrong, you will bury your failure and hope to get away with it. The trouble is it can end up destroying you, it can destroy your family, it can even destroy your company. We have to know, who do I talk to? When this goes wrong, the second question is is there any hope? The trouble when we get caught up, when integrity seems to be failing at a very, in a very large scale, is we feel that we're absolutely hopeless in the face of it. We feel that there's nothing can be done and the only outcome is bad. So then again, the temptation then is to simply bury it and pretend it's not there. And this is one of the huge challenges that we face currently, especially when we talk about corporate ethics. How do you actually build in a system of hope that somehow is actually gonna help people deal with these struggles rather than just simply pretend that there actually isn't something to be addressed in the first place? And then the last question then, about what is the process of redemption? Is there any form of process in all of this that actually gets me out of the situation I'm in and into something which I can actually look forward to tomorrow? Well, you have to be able to deal with that too. Who's ultimately gonna pay for all of this? Now, these questions suddenly become, therefore, absolutely pivotal. So even if you come here this evening and you don't agree with anything else I say, at the very least I hope that you'll have some questions that you'll take away with you from, because we have to answer all of these questions for ourselves, regardless of what we think or believe. We all need to understand where our ethics come from. We all need to have a basis about where it's actually ultimately grounded. We need to think about how it applies. We need to re-examine how it affects every form of relationship we have, not just simply in the business world, but also in our personal world. And then we actually then need to think about the other things in terms of how that directs and leads and guides our life. And is there any hope for transformation within it, ultimately, or not? One of the things that really fascinated me about the Christian faith, because I wasn't raised in a Christian culture or in a Christian family, was that when I actually came to look at it, I began to realize that, there was, that it began to answer these three last questions in a very profound way. That no matter what I had failed, there was always someone I could talk to. God had literally seen everything I had done, even before I'd done it. Actually, there was hope, because if you want any form of relationship restored, the person who's been offended must be willing to forgive. Even if you're sorry for what you've done, but the offended party has no interest in being reconciled, or no interest in having a relationship with you, no matter what form of apology is offered, it will never be accepted, because the other party isn't willing to take it. And there is a process of redemption. There is a price that is paid in the Christian faith by God himself, who's actually willing to pay for the mistakes that we have made to get us out of the hole that we find ourselves in. And it's utterly transforming when you realize it. Uh, I was very distrustful of Christians before I became one. I, I hope I don't offend anyone's political things here, but at the time, I felt about Christians the same way I thought about communists. Namely, they had nothing, but they wanted to share it with me. And I felt that if I were to embrace the Christian faith, my life would take a huge existential downgrade. I actually felt that life was going pretty well for me at every single level I could imagine. And by becoming a Christian, I'd go from my life being up here to somehow dropping in terms of happiness down to something just off the floor. And so i can remember thinking i really don't want to become a christian and even after i come to the conclusion that the christian faith was true i still didn't want to become a christian and the night i actually did become a christian i went to a couple of friends of mine none of whom were christian and i said i have some bad news for you i can't hold out any longer i've come to the conclusion the christian faith is true i'm going to have to become a christian tonight so i'm going to ask them to pray with me and i'm telling you now because from now on i won't be enjoying myself anymore (laughs) that's exactly verbatim what i said to them because i was totally convinced that the only outcome of making this decision could be more misery in my life. And part of the reason I thought it would make me more miserable was actually to do with ethics. I wasn't the best person in the world by any means, but then I didn't espouse to be. My life. There are two ways of dealing with the problem of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when you espouse a standard that's up here and your life is down there. Make sense. So there are two ways of dealing with that problem. problem. Solution one, get your life to match your standard. Solution two, lower the standard to match your life. And I'd gone for solution two. So I didn't particularly feel that, you know, I wasn't killing anyone or doing anything terrible like that, but then I wasn't pretending to be anything particularly good anything. And so now all of a sudden the idea of becoming a Christian terrified me because I thought that means the standard's up here, my life is down here, and I'm gonna be miserable trying to achieve it. One of the most revolutionary conversations I had just before I became a Christian was with someone I'd been having a long conversation with. And they looked at me and they said, Michael, you still don't understand the nature of this. When I made a decision to become a Christian, it wasn't a decision to be perfect it was a decision to be forgiven. And that resonated with me. And I suddenly realized, actually, I was in need of that forgiveness myself. And there is something incredibly profound that happens in terms of relationship when you actually find real forgiveness. I don't know if you've ever accidentally insulted a friend or something like that. You know, probably just me. Um, And you, you, you... you, you go up to them and you say, okay, I'm really sorry, I said that, you know, please forgive me. And they say, it's nothing, forget about it. Have you ever noticed how the very next day, they could literally walk into the far end of this room all the way over there, you can look at them and in one nanosecond you know if you've been forgiven or not. Have you ever noticed that? You don't even need to talk to them. You can just look in their eyes and you know whether it's happened. And if they haven't forgiven you and you go and apologize again and they just keep brushing you off, it can get very difficult because you have no idea what needs to happen in order to overcome it. But there's something even more profound in the nature of the Christian offer of forgiveness that's made to everybody. When we think of earning someone's, well, earning someone's forgiveness, it's a telling phrase, isn't it? When we think about forgiveness, we normally think it's earned. You know, I come to the guy who was hosting this meeting, and let's suppose I publicly insult him in front of all of you and call him all kinds of rude names. And he's nodding, so he obviously would like me to do that. Um, And so I publicly humiliate him in front of all of you. And you all leave here rather quietly tonight. And tomorrow morning, you see me sitting in a local coffee shop all by myself. And you can't resist it. You 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 come in, you sit next to me in the coffee shop, and you say, "That was a fascinating meeting last night." I've n- never seen anyone sort of like respond to the guy who introduced them that kind of way before. How's your relationship with them? And I look at you and I say, "They're the closest friend I have." There's no one I'm in the world closer to than them. Now I'd have to have the intellectual or the emotional intelligence of a carrot, right, to come to that conclusion. But let's suppose after everybody left tonight, okay, the gentleman introducing me comes up to me after you've all gone and says, Michael, what's going on in your life right now? And he, we go out and we have a talk and that turns into a 2 a.m. breakfast at a roadside cafe and it finishes at 7 a.m. as he buys me a cup of coffee. And he spent the whole evening with me and he makes it clear that even though I offended him, he bears no ill will towards me, and as a matter of fact, would very much be very happy to come to know me. And as he extends that gracious offer of friendship to me, if at some point in that evening I suddenly look at him and maybe even with tears say, I'm so sorry, I can't believe I said those things about you, will you please forgive me? And he does. Well, it may actually be true when you see me at seven o'clock in the morning, and you say, how's your relationship? And I say, I'm not, I think they're probably, it's probably the closest relationship I have. I mean, there may not be an ounce of exaggeration in that statement in those circumstances. In most systems around the world and in most religious systems around the world, forgiveness has to be earned. If someone offends you, they have to suffer enough and then you forgive them. Does that make sense? You know, I insult the host and having insulted him, my lip begins to quiver. Okay, i can't even make up my next sentence i start weeping uncontrollably i fall down on my knees i crawl over to him i hold onto his ankles in front of all of you beg for forgiveness now if i'd insulted you and that makes sense and now i'm weeping in front of everybody holding your ankles would you forgive me and i can see some of you are very hard to please <laughs> but you will forgive me when you think i've suffered enough Maybe even contracted some kind of painful long-term disease just to add to my tale of woe. You know, I'm, now I actually deserve forgiveness. In every system of the world we tend to earn it, except in the Christian faith, where forgiveness is offered as a gift. The message of the gospel isn't come to me and apologize and I'll forgive you. It's a message that God is actually offering forgiveness to us even before we thought of asking for it. And there's something very, very humbling in that and there's something incredible about the relationship that comes when you find it. Well that's probably enough for me at this stage. Um, I certainly hope it's enough to be able to think about. Um, What we're going to do is we're going to move into a time of Q&A and you'll notice on your tables there are some feedback cards that say rethink on them and there's also space within them to ask a question. And so if you would like to take a couple of moments to think about a question and then write it in there then you'll either have the opportunity to ask it or if we don't get round to your question tonight, um, if you make sure you leave your name and your email, um, then we'll drop you a line, and someone from one of the team here will meet up with you for a cup of coffee, you know, or a chat, or whatever it is that you would like, or something to read or listen to, to make sure your question is answered. But as we come <coughs> towards the end of the evening, I know we're setting the question cards on fire now. Um, don't worry, that's my table. Don't, don't just ignore that. Um, but, uh, uh, but as we come towards the end of the evening, um, let me also just suggest three possible initial responses to what's happened here tonight. You may be sitting here tonight thinking, no way. I don't agree with a single thing you've said, okay, um, and I'm just not sure. Well, I, I hope at the very least you've enjoyed the meal and some of the company and the fellowship around the table, and that maybe at least one or two of the questions which have been asked have given you something to take away and think about. Uh, and if you're serious about wanting to have a question raised and dealt with, we'll still be very happy to meet and talk with you. you know, do fill out the card and just leave that piece of feedback. You might be sitting here tonight and you might be thinking, maybe, maybe this is right. Maybe there's something in this. Maybe this is something I should think about more. Well, you'll also see a little box on that feedback form that says, tell me more. And if you leave a way to contact you and you tick, tell me more, then someone will be in contact with you in the next 24 to 48 hours um, and let you know about one of the courses that you can see which are being advertised on your table, together with some of the other things which are happening here. And they would love to invite you and have you come in. The the third possibility is you're sitting here and you're thinking, yes. Your, Your response is, actually, I do think this is true. And I do think what you've been talking about is right, and things have fallen into place for me. Maybe you've even been thinking about the Christian faith for a while, and you know that you need to say yes. That actually, the forgiveness that we've talked about, you need to say yes to that. And you understand the means by which it's made it possible to you. Well, if that's, if that's where you are, then I would urge you to fill out your name and your email, and there's a little box there that says, count me in. And if you tick that box, that's what you're saying. Yes, I think this is right. And again, would love to be in contact with you to talk about that. Logically speaking, those are the only three responses to anything you hear. No, I'm not sure, yes. And we're giving everyone the opportunity here to to respond. So what we'll do is we'll take a couple of minutes for you to be able to fill out the card if you'd like to, Um, give you a couple of minutes to think about a question that you'd like to ask. Even if you want to stand up and ask it rather than maybe pass it up to the front, it may be helpful if you write it out beforehand so that you can structure it in the way that you want. Um, and then after a couple of minutes break, um, in which you'll also be allowed to run to the restroom to take a comfort break, toilet, I guess you know, we can use that word because we're definitely in England now, um, um, then we will do a Q&A. Um, if you would prefer not to ask your question, I know some people love standing up and asking questions, other people feel a little nervous about that. If you would prefer just to write out your question now and hand it in, then if you do, during the break, pass it up to the front, then I'm sure we can take a few written questions if you will prefer just to you know, have your question read out you know, from here. And then we'll make sure that we're finished uh, in good time before 10 o'clock. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening. Existential crisis to humankind of climate change. this? Um, the question is about our response, our what we're committed to in terms of climate change. Is that what you're asking? Well, I mean, it's a huge question, so just very, very briefly because we've only got a matter of minutes is, I mean, by a matter of necessity, if we destroy the environment that we're in, then any form of function, whether it's personal, corporate or anything else, becomes impossible. And so you would hope that people would very quickly make out the, come to the conclusion that actually there is a requirement for all of us to actually think about the impact that we are having and what can happen, especially in light of what we're currently learning. Um, Otherwise, we won't be around much longer to ask the kinds of questions at all. Um, So um, I I would just say just very simply, there is obviously a huge need for that. Um, uh, And I'm I'm not sure what more else to say apart from the fact that you talked about the existential crisis that we can can face. If by that you mean in terms of how we actually feel about ourselves and, and our relationship to the environment that we're in and with other people, then it naturally... Goes, I think it flows with what we're talking about in terms of relationships and how all relationships, all intimate relationships, are morally governed. That whenever we live in violation of that and we're actually doing something that's harming someone else, um, that we then often have to try to find a way to live with the consequences of that, and that can hurt us, um, even in terms of how we actually you know, just feel, just generally, about life in and of itself. So um, there is something, therefore, incredibly amazing, not just simply when we seek forgiveness, but also change the pattern of behavior to be in line with where we think we may have gone wrong in the past. And for things to happen with the environment, that partly needs to happen. It's one thing to admit, okay, something wrong has happened here in the past. It's another thing to embrace the change in lifestyle that may go with it. Um, But uh, it's a very big question, and that's a very short answer. (laughs) Uh, We probably have time uh, before 10 for one or two more questions. So uh, there's a lady in the back. okay, it's a very big question again. One what, what of the challenges, if you try to replace ethical principle with law, you find that you start writing a lot because there is a huge difference, for example, in terms of talking about a general principle in medical ethics of do no harm and then thinking how do we codify that. The codificated response is going to run into volumes upon volumes. And so I think there is hope for actually bringing something back in, but it's not going to come through just an ever-increasing amount of regulation. The reason why we need the regulation there is when we start to abandon those kinds of moral and ethical principles, we need to replace it with something, and that's what we're in the process of replacing it with. Um, The trouble is, is as more people employ more lawyers on both sides, um, then it seems to often become a game to see how many loopholes you can find rather than thinking what's the spirit of all of this and how can I be in compliance with it. So um, now having said that, there have been huge sea changes in the past about the moral conviction of any country, including in the United Kingdom. Today in the UK, we take it for granted that there should be fair play in government, that it shouldn't be about nepotism, that that citizens should be free of incompetence from their elected officials, from from doctors, from other professional groups and so on. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff we take for granted. None of which could have been taken for granted in the late 1700s. One of the interesting things that happened during that whole period was that the moral conscience of Great Britain literally changed. If you look at pictures depicting life in London in the mid 1700s, you'll see pictures of people not just simply drinking in the streets and throwing up in the streets, but having sex in the streets public nudity, sex, all kinds of nudity, huge number of social problems. And you can just see it in the art. That's 1750. Fast forward to 1822, and they were going to put a statue of Achilles in Hyde Park, and there was public moral outrage because the statue was naked. So much so, they had to make a large concrete leaf, which they strategically placed uh, onto the statue. Now, here's the question. How do you move from a nation that had no problem with public sex acts in 1750 to, a couple of generations later, a culture that feels so sensitized to something like that? Does that make sense? That there's now a public outright. And the answer is a group of Christians by the name of William Wilberforce, Lord Shaftesbury, actually came and saw a sea change in how our society was organized. Labor laws changed. School laws changed. The way we talk, we run our medical ethics, our professional ethics, our legal ethics, our business ethics. Wilberforce at one point was referred to as the moral conscience of the nation and also described as someone who actually woke the whole. It's actually possible to bring about a cultural sea change in any sector or indeed in a country. Um, um, And that probably is what needs to actually happen within some of these professions. Otherwise, um, we're going to end up with a system which is so bound by regulation and so heavily overseen from the legal side that you do two other things. You stop new people coming into the market because you literally need the capital investment that you normally associate with building Boeing aircraft to set up a small financial advisory group. Does that make sense to make sure you're compliant because of the sheer amount of work that's required in terms of back office. So there's an there's a economic problem there but then there's an even bigger issue uh, which is to do with the fact that things will always run more smoothly when, when the market is principled and worked on that basis. Um, now, sadly, if we draw a straight line from where we are, things are only going to get worse. Um, I do actually happen to believe that history can sometimes take very strange turns. Um, and I said, we've seen evidence in this country before, and maybe it's something that we need to see in this country again. Yeah, it's a great question. Well, do uh, as I said, uh, Mark has very kindly agreed to... Uh, stay behind for a little bit uh, but it is just on 10 so I'm just going to ask David to come and close our evening Uh, for myself thank you all very much for coming out Uh, it's been lovely to have you Uh, we hope it's been really useful and insightful Uh, but I'll hand over to David and if you did fill out one of those cards do please do um, hand it in as you go out um, to make sure that especially if you've put in a question or you want some kind of connection back Uh, and then we'll make sure that someone is in contact with you. Thank you very much, everybody.